Hello and welcome to Music Speaks. This podcast dedicates itself to how music impacts people's lives. For the show, we usually have two co-hosts, myself, Hunter Sagona, and Sean Ramkunas, who's being blinded by the heavenly light from his windows behind him. Sean and I believe that many people have a playlist that makes their life unique through music. We pride ourselves on building upon our musical knowledge with our featured guests, jamming to incredible music, talking about a wide variety of artists and composers, and everything in between. Today's musical quote is by the subject of today's podcast. The aim and final end of all music should be none other than the glory of God and the refreshment of the soul. Johann Sebastian Bach. And today we will sit down to discuss Johann Sebastian Bach's Magnificat, BWV243 as the kids are calling it, is a musical setting of the biblical canticle Magnificat. It is scored for five vocal parts, two sopranos, alto, tenor, bass, and a Baroque orchestra including trumpets and timpani. It is the first major liturgical, liturgical composition on a Latin text by Bach, in 1723, after taking up his post as Thomas Cantor in Leipzig, Bach set the text of the Magnificat in a 12-movement composition in the key of E-flat major. For a performance at Christmas, he inserted four hymns, laudes, related to the feast. This version, including the Christmas interpolations, was given the number 2043.1, previously 243a, in the catalog of Bach's works. Likely for the Feast of Visitation of 1733, or another feast in or around that year, Bach produced a new version of his Latin Magnificat without the Christmas hymns. Instrumentation of some movements were alto and expanded, and the key changed from E-flat to D major for performance reasons of the trumpet parts. Wah, wah, wah. Uh, this version of Bach's Magnificat is known as BWV243.2, and previously BWV243, if you were interested in that at all. After publication of both versions in the 19th century, the second became the standard for performance, and it is one of Bach's most popular vocal works. And as those bells are chiming in every single one of our podcasts, it is time for us to know that it is time for us to start and dig in to Bach's Magnificat. Hello there, and uh, we are going to talk about some Bach today. I've been telling Hunter for maybe months and months and months, I was like, Hunter, please can we talk about Bach? And Hunter goes, no, not really. I'm not really interested. I'm like, and basically I slid $100 under Hunter's mattress, and I said, dude, if we do it, you can have this $100. And he said, all right, that's fine. So, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. He was very willing and submissive. No, I'm kidding. Um, no, we're going to talk about some Bach Magnificat today. We have a lot to talk about, but before we get into it, we have to obviously do um, the, uh, the usual ruse, as we call it. Um, if you would like to support this podcast, please go to anchor.com and search Music Speaks Podcast to find ways to reach out to us, and you will find our social media and other ways that you can contribute to this podcast. Did you know that, Hunter? I feel like I tell you that all the time, but maybe you don't listen to me. I might have heard I it feel once like or you twice. Might have heard it once or twice. Um, so today we're going to talk about the Magnificat. I've been mentioning many, many times. Um, but just for those who don't know what we're talking about today, this piece was written for a chamber orchestra 
Um, as I mentioned, uh, there were this part initially was an E flat, and then all the trumpets were like, "Wah, we don't like E flat." And then Bach was <laughs> like, "Fine, I'll write it in freaking D." And he, that's what he did. He wrote it in D because trumpets like playing in very normal keys, not flat keys. So he wrote it in D, and we have three trumpets. We have a timpani. Uh, both drums are tuned in D and A. We have two reverse flutes. I'm sure we'll talk about that today. Um, two oboes and two English horns, a violin, viola, cello, bass, soprano, alto, tenor, bass, soloists, and a chorus. And to top it all off, what the kids are listening to these days and what they're always talking about, the continuo, the basso continuo, which can either be included as the organ, the cello, the violin, or the bassoon. So that leads us to the first movement, my friend, which is the Magnificat Anima Mea, sung by the chorus. And also, I think of this sort of as the overture of the sort of whole Magnificat in a way. Mm -hmm. um, in my opinion, this beginning is so glorious. And it is beautiful. And it starts in D major, quite bright, very fast. And this first movement lasts only three minutes. And I should mention this whole work is actually 30 minutes. Um, I would actually think it'd be longer, but um, Bach does a really great, great job of narrowing down what he wants to hear. And he writes it very precisely in his music. Yeah, it's uh, concise. Almost each movement is, is really no more than three minutes. Right. And I think it's really beautiful that he does it that way. And as we were mentioning with this three, um, the piece begins in three. Mm -hmm. And the emphasis on the word of magni, magnificat, mm -hmm. magnificat. And there's a question of why in three. And I believe that because of the religious context, he would sort of make the connection to the Holy Trinity in that way. Yeah, three was considered the most sacred time back then because of that very reason. It was seen as a very um, perfect, you know, like it could be split. Split in three, you know, when things split in three, they did associate it with the Trinity. Right. And I think it's really notable because this is one of his most notable works for choir. This is probably the most programmatic work for choir. Um, very singable. Mm -hmm. um, and I love the trumpet part. A lot of this, um, I mean, Hunter's rolling his eyes. No, I'm kidding. Um, we're talking about the trumpet part. Um, a lot of grad auditions ask for this part because it's very challenging, very technical, a lot of double-tonguing on a very small piccolo trumpet. Um, not a lot of people audition on natural trumpets because they are very long gone, and not a lot of people know how to play the natural trumpet. Um, but this does fit a little better on the, um, the A piccolo trumpet just because it's in a better key. Um, it's very hard to play it on natural trumpet because you're very, it's a very long instrument. Um, high notes are very hard mm -hmm. to hit on this. Um, and um, it's interesting as we were talking about it too, because this piece sort of revolves around the key of, I believe it's D. Um, we get to the dominant sometimes. Um, and it's really interesting how the first accidentals in this piece is actually played by the trumpet introducing the key of the dominant, which is A. Um, so I'm, I'm going to pass it over to you, my friend. What were your thoughts about this opening? Yeah, I noted that, um, you know, you brought attention to the word magnificat, mm -hmm. right? And it, whenever, the, whenever the word magnificat shows up, 
it's always notated in the same way. It's always a, the same pattern. It's uh, an eighth note dotted eighth note followed by 16th and then quarter note, you know, magnifica. Uh, and I feel like it, it's meant to stand out. You know what I mean? Like whenever you hear that pattern, you know they're referencing that word. Mm -hmm. Even if they're not speaking it, you know if you hear that pattern, it's still supposed to be that word. Um, mm -hmm. And something else that I noted was that there's a 16th note pattern that's sort of passed around from part to part. Yes. And I believe it begins, since I'm looking at the score here, begins in the oboes, eventually gets passed up to the, the um, flutes, and then it sort of gets passed around in chunks to other other instruments. Trumpet has it at one point. Right. And, you know, it's sort of this constant, it, it it's almost never not being played, and it gives the whole movement this sense of motion because it's mm -hmm. a 16th note pattern, so it's faster. Or not faster, it's just, you know, because the tempo is fast, therefore it's faster. Right. And it, I think it drives the whole section, yeah. the whole movement. So that, that's mm -hmm. sort of cool. Keeps it going. Cool. It keeps it energetic. There's, a very and, nice, there's also a very nice gesture, too, in the opening of the... Mm -hmm. I think it adds to not just the three feel, but also the direction of where the phrase is going. Not necessarily going up, but going down. We mm -hmm. don't really think about that a lot, but the instruments are really making a really great job of phrasing, leading not to, to the top note, but to the bottom note. It's just really, I think it's a really great cadential figure, those like, um, those, those seconds. You know? Yeah, it sort of makes you hover around the the target note and just right. adds a little flourish on the end, which is very Baroque. You know, you add a little bit of something before you land on the note you're uh, really meaning to go to. And whenever the note jumps, it seems like it's frequently either a fourth or a seventh, which is kind of weird. But mm -hmm. um, And then on top of that, we have more towards the end of the piece, very, uh, or not end of the piece, end of this movement, you have a very uh, period retardando at the end, right? That's it's something so characteristic of this mm -hmm. time period that, you know, uh, not not that's not to say that Bach wasn't, you know, earth shattering, but he clearly was writing for the audience that he knew, right? He knew that they would have expected something like that. Right. So if you didn't put it in, especially with such a grand opening like this, you ex expect like a duh, duh. Duh, in like a nice slowdown retardando for those who don't know um, musical terminology. And then, you know, obviously ending on the tonic. Right. But one other thing that I, I did want to note is that this work, not so much about the, the technicality of it, but it's often compared to Vivaldi's Gloria. Okay. And both are seen as sort of the two, what's the word I'm looking for? The two ultimate works of liturgical music for this time period. Sure. Yeah. Um, and they do share, they do share some similarities. There's a part later on, I think that really sounds quite a bit, not a, not a bit like it, but really has a similar style to Vivaldi's, but we'll get to that later. Right. No, I think that definitely plays in the role of forms and the role of um, designated design of, of practical phrases and writing. Mm -hmm. Which is a big about... part of the Baroque era. 
Right, and we'll, and we'll talk about Ritornello form, I think, later in the podcast about the way that Bach would write this. I think it's kind of a really important tool that he uses that for, I think, for soloists, I think, talking about mm -hmm. uh, understanding the phrases between the singing and then the playing um, and designating those different spots. Um, and I want to mention quickly that I think it's really interesting that um, this key, it really stays in D really, really a lot. You might get a little bit of A, but D is just that really joy, joyous and triumphant sound that we're all really thinking about when we think of like, joy to the world is in the key of D, you know? Right. I think that that really just shows the, not the reverence, but the, the, the triumph of, of being in heaven and the triumph of being involved with, you know, I think a God or being in heaven, you know, that sort of like you've made it and here you are, we're going to be celebrating you, you know? Mm -hmm. and I, I mean, the I word, the title itself, Magnificat, right? So it's that idea of magnitude, magnificence, glory. I mean, it's all that same, something you'd associate with major keys, first of all. So right, right there, you have to make sure the beginning, the opener, the grand uh, starter has to be in major. Right. And it's so interesting that the way this is written, because like I mentioned with the gestures, we have all these falling lines, but then we might get a little bit of B, but it is so happy and it's so joyous. And I, I wrote down great triumph of joy and unity of being together, people using magnificat, magnificat. And it's just really a powerful line that lends to the unity of what Bach was going for, mm -hmm. I think, in the first moment. Um, I think it's good, good enough to talk about the first movement. Let's go to the second movement. The second movement is entitled A, Exultit Spiritus Meus, uh, sung by the soprano two-part. And we are back in the key of D. I wrote in my notes that I think this is one of the very soft-spoken movements, very beautiful, mm -hmm. very kind of like takes kind of the edge off of, of where we initially were but it's just a very beautiful, slow movement. Um, and I wrote in my notes that it was almost like the first movement, but also similar to Bach cantatas where most other movements revolve around similar keys and traditional cadences. Mm -hmm. So I think that's definitely a mention. And I wrote down that melismas in this are very beautiful. Um, when, I, when I mention melismas, I mean that when we're sort of going from line to line, the um it is not very uh established but but i believe that bach had written out lines long and also with elongated syllables with different notes mm -hmm. i'll toss it over to you my friend what were your thoughts on this movement so uh first thing that i noticed was and he does this quite a bit for each of the movements he changes the instrumentation Mm. And mm -hmm. this for this particular one, he's dropped most of the strings and the winds. I mean, the only ones that are in this um, is it's, you know, violin one, two, viola, and then voice. And well, you have bass, I guess. So it's just the, the mag, the, the volume of the orchestra has, has dropped. Even if there are a lot of parts, there may be not as, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There just aren't as many people playing in this movement, which automatically makes it now a little bit quieter. Right. And the focus now being on the lone voice, which starts singing in this piece. So I feel like the first movement, you know, he wanted to place emphasis on 
the orchestra as a whole and mm-hmm. you know just the the grandeur of the music this one he wants to really focus in and you know gets it makes it a little more personal the vocalist anytime you add the human voice it's always i feel like a little more personal so now he's having this you know female singer soprano which actually during his era i don't know do you think it would have been a would have been a um castrati singing uh yes i think so i would say so yeah okay so for those of you who don't know the castrati were were men who um unfortunately uh they wanted to retain their higher voices mm-hmm. with, that they had in childhood and therefore took measures to prevent their voices from dropping if you catch my meaning so <laughs> it's, it's nothing funny but definitely just what we're talking about yes um, i want to get a little more deeper into the gesture again as we were talking with sure. the line um because i think it's really beautiful how he sets this up with the soprano too i think it's really sort of like a bomb 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 you know and it's it's just so it 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 has that emphasis on on one but it's almost a little sly with it too you know mm-hmm. i just, just kind of like the way that sort of fits into the pocket and he he does he sort of alters that line as he continues and um i i love singing bach because some of the hardest things to do is to sing some of those really fast notes and to and to accent each individual note without having to restart the the um the actual vowel of what what the text is which i think is really interesting um it's really beautiful right which at this time you would have had to do a lot of because right i mean a lot of times those extended vowels um you could sing like a whole two bars on just one vowel sound right Right, yeah. And I want to get your opinion on this because um, there's also a very important moment where we return to, actually we kind of move to E major at some point, which I think is really interesting. Um, there's, a, there's a spot where I believe, yes, there's a spot almost in measures um, where we get to the... Um, Right down in measure 24 going into 31 we then can sort of find a way to lean into to e a little bit and then we get back to d which i think is really interesting but he also does a really great job of slightly moving into b minor mm-hmm. i think and there's this really beautiful passage where he goes from uh i think he sets up d really well and then he starts using these a sharps yeah, that's what I noted. The A sharps. It's like the the one accidental that he he uses quite a bit of really leading into the B section. Yeah, it's really it's really sneaky the way he does it, where he sets up D really really well. He also sets up um, some uh, A sharps and G sharps, but then he gets back to D very um, tonally. I think he sort of sets up B minor a little bit. But then as he's um, continuing on, uh, Bach wants to get back to the original key. So he finds a way to slowly make us back into, back into D once again, which I think is really beautiful. And the orchestration for this is, I believe, um, two violins, a viola, 
um, soprano and continual, which I think is really beautiful. Um, right, plus bass, uh, or violoncello, which is just the right. cello. Which is, yeah, I would say so too. Um, um, oh, go ahead. No, 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 I was just gonna say, I, I, I really enjoyed this movie just because even though it had this very calming effect, it was also a little sly in its deception mm -hmm. with moving in different keys. And I think it's really beautiful that way. Yeah, I was my my only observation was just that, um, you know, you mentioned he he does he does move to other keys and returns back to the home key, and mm -hmm. I feel like that's something that composers would have had to know. Mm -hmm. Not uh, of course they would have had to know how to do that, but what I mean is is it would have been expected of him that mm -hmm. each of these movements would, for the most part, where you start is where you end. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it was in order to have full resolution in the piece. Right. Yeah. And I think it's really a really beautiful gesture too. the way that he sort of like is sneakily making his way around all these different keys. Um, mm -hmm. But it's very, it's almost grounded from the previous movement. And it, it's very needed because he makes a great transition into the next movement. Mm -hmm. It is entitled Quia Respicit Humilitatum. Uh, sung by the soprano one, um, expressively in B minor. Um, I wrote down immediately, utilizing the harmonic minor scale very well. Mm -hmm. um, and I wrote down it was more haunting than the last movement. Uh, your thoughts right away. So first thing I noticed is, again, we have thinned the texture, which I think contributes to the overall tone of the piece, which as you said, you know, we moved to the minor and as minor insinuates darker, oboe is obviously darker than regular mm -hmm. oboe and, mm -hmm. or, or, I mean, I think so, maybe other people don't, but, and so mm -hmm. by adding that now you, you've not only changed the I'll say background, quote unquote, because the oboe d'amore has the, the melodies at some point. Um, but you've also changed the soloist instrument, um, which right off the bat, that's the first thing people will listen to. So now you've immersed them in the minor sound. And on top of that, you've also moved uh, out of compound meter. Right. And we're back in simple meter because this piece, this particular movement is in two. So right off the bat, you're moving out of what was like, quote unquote, the holier sacred time signature mm -hmm. into a more secular time signature. And you're making it darker. It's almost like you're moving away from the uh, religious aspect of it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I don't know if that's, I, I assume he did that intentionally, but. I don't know how that would have must have gone over well in the in the church because I mean it's not like you're composing in the Middle Ages where if you did that they'd shoot you. But um, now I feel like it was it was more accepted. But there is that little bit of like I don't know if it's like a dig that he didn't want to write for the church or if it was just he wanted maybe to show conflict with you know like religious belief. I, yeah. I'm not sure, but everything seems to be away from what you'd expect to hear in liturgical music. Right, and the translated version of this individual movement is actually I Looked Down. Okay, so that really fits with the theme, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, yeah. Which is really interesting because it plays into the expectations of the, the identity of the song and definitely the lines of the, 
of again that that sort of leaning down and going down mm -hmm. uh, those very slow harmonic minor progressions. And I was going to mention to you, I almost feel like the oboe in this case could almost be a voice. Very much so. Oboe yeah, d'amore always has that that sound to it. And I feel like it could definitely mock a voice, but Bach decided instead of putting a voice, he wanted to have the oboe soloist there instead. Right, and that's go. You know, that's for what one, two, three, four, five measures, and then the voice picks up after that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's almost it's even though it's not technically a duet, it's almost like a duet. I love I love this opening line where he goes, We are I love those those six. Those sound so sad. And I love <laughs> it really does. It's a very haunting. It really is. Ah, so sad. There's that harmonic minor. <laughs> yeah, oh, it, it's, it is so, mm -hmm. so sad. Um, yeah, and then the yeah. other one other thing I, I was noting just about the instrumentation is that um, the, the cembalo, which is cembalo's harpsichord, um, right, in, yeah. in Italian, that's what they call it. Uh, the cembalo and the bass uh, line mm -hmm. The two of them, um, they are almost identical in almost the, not identical, rhythmically, they are almost identical the whole piece, mm -hmm. but they're harmonizing the whole way. So really the only things that are moving differently from each other in, rhythmically is obodamore and voice when they're switching back and forth with each other. So the rest of it is pretty uniformed. Right, yeah. And I mentioned this because of the scale-like representation. I wrote that it can be visualized by crying or weeping. Actually, that is a pretty good representation. You're right. It's And it's a lot of that downward motion, which also yeah. fits with the title. Yeah, I look down. Yeah, mm -hmm. in a way. Um, and I, I wanted to ask, because is this depressing or is it not depressing? And we're looking down at someone who had sinned, maybe, with... Box intent of sin and, and where it sort of lays on on a Christian mind. I mean, I I, I don't get necessarily. I mean, it definitely could definitely. be construed as sadness, but in a, in a liturgical sense, I feel like it's more about uh, repentance, maybe. Mm, yeah, you know, feeling Asking feeling sorry for what. Yeah, asking for forgiveness. Right, exactly. Right, yeah. I think it's really beautiful, and it is. It's. It's not almost, and I'm not going to say it's not a very sad aria. I'm just saying I think it's it's full of very intentful or very interesting ways of describing sort of like this reverence, you know, or just kneeling, you mm -hmm. know, or I think there's a great word, penitence, you know. Sneering. Right, penitence. Yes, very much so. Yeah, and wanting to sort of put your head down and look down, um, mm -hmm. and just just like that, um, we're gonna move right into the next movement because that's what happens with this next movement is it just roars into this next movement with I believe it is called omnis generationes. I believe it's all generations. I believe the translation is, um, and I wrote a blazing fast 
fear ferocious from the last previous movement. Um, and I, I wanted to sort of give you a little bit of an assignment, Hunter. I know this is weird. Okay. But the assignment is, can you find voices that are similar to instruments and help me narrow that down? Something he's doing very creatively. Finding voices similar to instruments. Voices similar to instruments. But, uh, what do you mean by that? It's a very, it's a very compositional thing to do at the time to copy voices by the um, timbre or exactly. Oh, the, I the, see. The, the voice. Check out what what he's doing. Mm -hmm. Look at um, what exactly he's writing. Look and see if you can find the the connection from voices to lutes to to, to oboes to to violins. Right. I mean, at first. First glance, the first thing that sort of stands out is that the um, soprano two voice he has written, you know, with oboe d'amore two and flaut, uh, flauto, flauto is in Italian, uh, mm -hmm. flute two. Um, mm -hmm. So they are given the same part there at the beginning. You have um, a little bit later on, you have the bass voice, which is playing the same thing uh, as the what do you call it? The, the fagotto, the uh, bassoon. Mm -hmm. And then if you look on the second page, mm -hmm. you have, uh, what is it, soprano? No, not soprano. You have, oh, the bass again is still with the bassoon. And yeah. then the tenor voice picks up the same thing as the, what is that? Looking at the, uh, viola, no, violin. No, it's definitely viola. Uh, no, it's not. Yeah. Violin two, violin two. I think they have the same. Why does arc. he repeat all all generations, all all generations here in this minor? I believe we're in. I think we're in F sharp minor. I think initially. I think he starts in F sharp minor. Uh, yeah, it looks like it because you have G sharps everywhere. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's an F sharp. Actually, I think it's. I mean, E sharp. So yeah, I mean, there are E sharps and G sharps. Yeah, I would. Um, I would start with F sharp, but I think he makes his way to the end of it. To I think moves into a major key at the end of this one. I believe at the end of this section. Um, yeah, he makes it back to F sharp. Um, a very interesting uh, the way he writes this. Can we look at the last four measures, measures 24 yeah. through measures 28? Tell me what you're visually seeing in this section. Because well, the, the first of those four bars, I mean, it starts on a fermata, and, it, and the last of the four bars end on a fermata. So right there, you're sort of making bookends. Um, so, and I feel like this is something that's very compositional. Uh, for the time period. But what I I do like in this section is the hold, which is four from the end. And then you have this, um, I don't know what you would what you would call it, just this pattern. And the um, the eighth notes there, bump, 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 da, 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 you know. Mm -hmm. you it's a very marked time, almost March-like. Can I ask you something? Sure. Take a look at that chord on the downbeat of two in this in measure twenty-four. What what chord are we seeing here? 
The me uh, down measure. Hang on, my measures in the one I'm looking at aren't numbered. Is that four from the end? That is four from the end. Yes. All right, and you said beat two. Beat two. Beat two. So it's looking like we have E sharp. Well, I'm looking at the top parts. We have E sharp. We have B. We have uh, B natural. Well, they're both B naturals. And then G uh, and A. So if we stack those, that would be haha, B. Get it? Um, <laughs> sorry, bad joke. You have E G sharp or E sharp G sharp B, mm -hmm. and then you have this A in there. So Ooh, I don't think so. Oh, I mean, what is it like? A E sharp my an E sharp major chord? I believe it I is. What would you call that? I believe it's a five seven because the the bass note is a C sharp. The tenor note is a G sharp, E sharp, and alto, C sharp. It's really interesting the way he pairs these two notes with the two sopranos on the top with the C sharp and the B. Very close, um, very kind of right next to each other. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. one, and usually one is higher than the other, but the soprano two part is higher than the soprano one part. So I believe it's a five seven that then leads to one. Check that out. Check that out. You have... And he writes it in a very beautiful way with um, a very open chord, uh, C-sharp, mm -hmm. um, E-sharp, um, because you know men's voices are usually an octave lower than, than it should right. be. And then w women's voices are actually pretty accurate to where the pitch is actually located. So mm -hmm. low C-sharp, G-sharp, E-sharp, C-sharp, and then he doesn't actually give it to, he doesn't give, the, he doesn't give them the E-sharp, but he gives them the B. You know, mm -hmm. and I want to. And something else that's interesting is that the soprano yeah. one voice doesn't actually move; it just holds on that same note. And usually, soprano one is the one that moves, and you have the inner voices, which yeah. are the ones that try to stay as consistent as possible. But it actually it jumps. Right. Yeah. He he makes it all the way down to this next section, and I want to ask you: look at. Look at the the penultimate penultimate measure where you see omnis omnis right before that, and then look at the bar before that, but look at the bass part. Bass part, okay. We have. Yep. Isn't that interesting? He then copies he copies that same part and he just flips it on top. Oh yeah, you're right. I didn't notice that. Yeah, very creatively, compositionally beautiful. Um, mm -hmm. So why all this chaos? Why make it? I think I was going to ask that initially. Why do you think there's all this chaos be between all this generational sort of like sound? Are people well, I mean, over their thoughts? It definitely could be. I mean, if you're talking about generations, those are, I think, you know, generations are always at war with each other. So maybe there's some sort of commentary on that, right. um, which eventually then, you know, after that chaos in that very last bar, mm -hmm. the rhythm is relatively uniformed and leads to everyone holding on the last note. So it's sort of like maybe they, you know, you find peace eventually mm -hmm. at the end, um, mm -hmm. where ideally each generation wants the same thing. Maybe it's mm -hmm. they just don't know what they want, and then they all find yeah. it, in, and they, you know they're harmonically there. Yeah, and if you don't mind me asking and my telling you. Isn't it interesting that we're almost in F-sharp Phrygian in this section, but he has to add those accidentals 
to, to get to F sharp at the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which I think is interesting. Um, there's also the uh, the idea of because um, there's a, almost a part where we get to D major, but he said, "No, we're in F sharp minor," and it's very, very almost very harsh sounding. <laughs> but then, after this section, we then receive the next aria, which is the bass aria. Mm -hmm. I think it's almost a little bit. It definitely takes the edge off. <laughs> Yeah, the previous movement, and I wrote down, it is. I wrote nothing like a big fat bass aria to sing a less serious aria. Yep, and I believe this is in the key of A major. Um, in written very, it is, and it's very, it's very jumpy, and it sounds very heavy. Um, I believe the tempo for this section is. Uh, you know, it's 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 very bouncy and very bubbly. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on this movement? Yeah, it's it's funny. It's it's definitely uh, you described it as as heavy, but at the same time, it also has this sort of like lightheartedness to it, even though the sound itself is heavy. Which is funny because it's such a it's such a thin texture. It's only the bass, cello, and harpsichord. So they've mm. taken out everything else that was playing the rest of the uh, the rest of the piece, right. and just leaving it with these the very the very low sounding right. uh, or low registered instruments minus the harpsichord, which is obviously all registers. Um, but the singing itself is very deliberate. You know what I mean? It's not like what you would think of as a as a grand aria. It it because it's bouncy. The singing is almost marcato. Yes, yes, it is. And uh, it's it, what else is interesting is that it's the only, it's the first time the male voice is singled out. Yes. You know yeah. what I mean? Like the the soprano. Uh, I say male voice, but obviously at the time it probably would have been a guy doing all the parts. You're right. Um, yeah, this is the first time we get the bass voice alone. Yeah. Right. So. I I'm, I don't know if that was an intentional like oh he you know they need to get a turn or if it's they mm -hmm. are trying to he if he's trying I, I say they it's one guy he's trying to make a point about uh, this section because it's uh, what is it quia fecit right isn't that it that's right that's right I forgot to mention the title for this movement but quia fecit mihi mania right and do we have a translation for that. Let's get a quick translation. Let's see what it says. I'm going to go to Google Translate real quick, pop this bad boy in, and see what it says. It says, for he that. For he that. Okay, so it, it's talking about a guy, right? I mean, I, the whole setting of this of this piece is supposed to be the conversation between Mary and her cousin Elizabeth after finding out that Elizabeth is pregnant. Um, so they're, I mean, they're, they're talking about God, I assume. Mm -hmm. And uh, that actually adds a lot of, of context to the song because, mm -hmm. or, or this movement because that's why you would choose the lowest voice because I feel like that's usually the one that's most associated with, quote, unquote, the voice of God. Right, right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the big, booming, thunderous. And, and it's not very serious, too. It's very right. plain, yeah. 
Right. So there's not a lot of embellishment. It's not, I don't want to say fancy. It's like the message is there, get the message. Right. Yeah. There's only one section where I believe it, it cadences in C sharp minor, but then immediately after that, we're back to a major. Right. Yeah. Um, because box like, okay, here's a natural sign. Here's a, cause that's the D natural that we need to get back to a sharp. Well, a, mm -hmm. a sharp, a natural, a, a major Jesus. Have a little bit of mini stroke here. Pick one, it's fine. Um, they just pick any of them. Um, and now we are going to get to a misericordia, the sixth movement of this. I'm going to quick translate for that one, and that is the compassion, mm -hmm. the love of Jesus. Um, I want to say um, it is really similar to number two with the ritornello form. Um, with the sort of uh, understanding between the the melody that keeps repeating and then the the voice that echoes the um, the, the the sort of the um, the choir there, um, but I want to ask you, uh, there's a lot of suspension and release with this individual movement, and I think mm -hmm. that really does contribute to the sound of suffering in a way, like we're kind of like giving something up, you know, when we're doing. Right. Well, well, you know, it creates um, a suspension, creates tension. So any resolution to that tension, it all, you know, it's it's like I don't want to say painful to the ear when it's tension, but the release is pleasant. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. the, the release is like the release of pain. So that makes sense, right? Yeah. And compassion, right? Often, you know, when you're oh. trying to show compassion, you're trying to ease pain, right? And I believe that this 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 movement is in E minor. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's very beautiful. I'm glad that there we get to finally get to hear some flute. I got to hear some flute in this movement, which I think yeah. is very beautiful, very lyrical. And wrote down because it's in 12-8, I thought it was a great tool for Bach because it stretches beats ever so slightly to sort of really get the substance and feel of the phrase continuing. Like ya -di -da 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 -di -da. And I feel it's a very, very slow, but it's also a really, really great tool to just stretch phrases a little longer because it has that compound meter. Um, no yeah. real room for major, maybe a quick lead to E major at some points, but the material is very serious overall, I wrote mm -hmm. down. Any other thoughts you have on this one? Uh, first thing that, uh, it, it, not about the key, but the first thing that struck me was that it's a duet and mm -hmm. it's the only duet in this piece. It is. Is it? Interesting. It is. And I feel like, you know, because this uh, this whole piece is based off of this conversation between between Mary and Elizabeth, a conversation is, is like a duet, or rather a duet is like a conversation. Mm. Um, this exchange of hearts. And given that this particular section is called, um, you know, it, it's based on compassion, um, we already talked about the, the tension and release, the tension and resolution. That all plays into, I think, how he wanted to convey that sense of their conversation. It's all part of the larger picture of how he is trying to bring each of these lines to life. Right, right. And I think there's a little bit of life in those trills and cadences. Mm -hmm. Because he sets up those expectations so well, and then they feel so satisfying when we get there, you know? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of really great movement, and uh, is there any section of it that really speaks to you at all? 
I mean, I, I really, I do like 12, eight time uh, in general. So I, I do like the, the motion that it gives, you know, you mentioned how the fact that it was in 12, eight expanded the beat a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. gives you that lingering sense. I feel like whenever we're in any sort of compound time, the beat is always given a little bit of extra lift to it. You know, almost like when you hang in the air for a second before you drop mm -hmm. that, that, that second. And I think that because he slowed the tempo down and I realize this doesn't quite answer your question, but, um, the whole piece to me, mm -hmm. particularly whenever we have those eighth, those triple, uh, eighth note patterns, mm -hmm. the, I like the feel that it, that it gives. So mm -hmm. I think it's, it's good that he chose to notate it in this particular time signature. Yeah. Can I point on a measure real quick for you? Sure. Can you look at measure 17 real quick? Sure, measure 17. Let's see here. That is 4, 8, 12, 16, 17. Check out the check out the the um the alto. And then as the echo of that. Oh, it is it, it is just there's that sort of almost counterpuntal. It, it, it just works so well on so many levels. Mm -hmm. it, just, it, it doesn't really come together, but when it comes together, it's so smooth, you know? Right. Yeah. And that's really the best way I would describe this section is smooth. Right. Yeah. It's sad, but it's also very relaxed, mm -hmm. which we don't really get a lot of in box music, but I think it's very interesting that in this moment, that is what he's going for. Right. Know? But at the same time, I wouldn't call it the same kind of sadness or the the penitence, as you said, from the right other section before. Right, because something's moving. Something right, is exactly. Pressed, and something is kind of being reached for very slowly, though. You know, I would say. Yeah. Um, and with that note, I think it's time for us to take a break. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's take a break uh, for those listeners again. I know you're bored about hearing this one, but take a break. We're going to sponsor by our friends at Anchor. Uh, again, Hunter, do you know that we're on Twitter? No, Sean, do tell. Are we on? Do you know that we're on Instagram? Tell me more. Do you know that we're on a Facebook? You don't say. Do you know that we're on TikTok? I did not know. And did you know that we were on YouTube? News to me. That's right. So on Twitter, we are at MusicSpeaks underscore pod. Instagram, we are MusicSpeaks underscore podcast we are music speaks podcast on facebook we are at music speaks underscore pod on tiktok and music speaks podcast on youtube so with that we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more bach so please stay and listen to more bach all right be right back all right and we are bach <laughs> <laughs> I missed my window to say we were going to come Bach from a break, but I think it was better that I said we are Bach from break. But uh, speaking of Bach, we have to talk about the seventh movement, which is Fisit Potentium, sung by the chorus, and we get to D major. Yep, massive callback to the first movement. That's right, the massive callback to the first movement. Um, how does it feel to return to D major? I think it's very satisfying. I think it's a familiar key and it's, uh, a, I don't want to call it a safe key, but it's sort of, I mean, I think any major key is, is safe. Right. D is one of the, the staple keys. So I feel like, 
you know, if you were in like G sharp major, you know, that's a little less, I wouldn't call that as safe, but D is, and it's very comforting, I think, to an audience. Right. I scream for the first trumpet player who has to play a high E. That is very painful. I believe, actually, did I, did I see a F sharp? Uh, no, that's a D. That's my bad. And I want to actually pull your attention to the end, Hunter. It's very interesting. The, the end, end of this movement measures 29 to the end. What chord do we hear at measure 29? Scrolling to measure. Oh, here we go. Measure, let's see. I don't have the measure numbers here. How much is that from the end? So what happens is we hear uh, spirsit and then superbos. We get a break. Mente core. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. What chord do we get on the down beat of that measure? Oh, the 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 second beat of that measure. Boom, boom, boom. Oh, the second beat of that measure. Uh huh. That's three from the end. That is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven from the end. One, two, three, four, five, six. Seven. Okay, I because those lines repeat, I was at the next time they say it. No, it's okay. All right, beat two. Uh, we have, let's see here, in beat two, we have looking at the parts that are in the in the you know the major key. Sure. We've got uh what do we have here? D A sharp, um, D again, F sharp, and which one is that? D. Just looking through if there's any. It's a lot of repeated voices in different octaves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if, if we're going for A sharp, D, F sharp, mm -hmm. A sharp, D, and F sharp. That's weird. Uh, is it like an augmented maybe? It's an augmented D major chord. Right. What do we think about that? I mean, I, I happen to note the that whole section, the like the eight bars from the end, um, I re I really like the sound of it. It has this very grand and yet um, ethereal, almost uh, yeah, ethereal. That's a real that's a good word for it. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, sort of otherworldly in a in a good way, right? Which right. is sort of the best way to describe mm -hmm. ethereal. It's strange that chord when it comes in. It's just very moving and we're not thinking we're going to get to a, a cadence but then we do and it's it's just bomb and it, it's so awesome because check out the last uh the penultimate line of the trumpet i love that part there do ti la so fa do ti la so la so fa mi mi me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's awesome. I love that line. It, it really brings the whole movement together because we get all this really crazy, fast, sort of really intense uh, 16th note sort of intention. Look at the look at the um, look at the previous page. I mean, I'm sure you have different score, but look at the different the other pages and look how many 16th notes are in the in the um, in this. Yeah. Uh, it's crazy. We don't even yeah, care where we're going. Yeah, and each part sort of gets a chance to to play them at some point. Um, and again, that that's sort of like the first movement where we said the sixteenth note pattern is almost always present. It keeps the the feel, the flow of the song going 
yeah. until you get that fermata, which is like, you know, stop bang, and then you finish out the rest of the piece in a much slower way because it switches to adagio right. uh, at, set at eight from the end. And then, um, and then I also noted the dynamic contrast in those last four bars, mm. which really, I mean, it's much different from the first movement where it was not, not all the same volume, but this one intentionally makes a point of saying we have to change mm -hmm. the, uh, make it very noticeable that we're changing the dynamics. Right. Why is it so grand at the end? Why does Bach decide to slow everything down? Why doesn't he just keep going with all this craziness? Um, again, I think a sense of resolution can often be better felt if it's slowed mm -hmm. down. Right. Whereas if it's fast, you know, you could have a great chord progression that ends right on the tonic. It could be very satisfying. But if it's fast, it's almost like you don't have time to process it. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, listeners at the time, again, that's something they would have expected. They would have wanted to be able to really feel the mm -hmm. end of the movement, Setting up especially, especially a major key movement. Yeah. I think it's really beautiful how he does this. And uh, there's a lot of fast, sort of really um, very experimental parts because we're back into D, and we we get we get the trumpets back, which symbol the the ideas of triumph and the ideas of um, reaching. I think it's I believe potentia is definitely potential. Um, yeah, it power. Power, right? Uh, what what does the word fisit mean in Latin? I wonder. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what it, what it translates, but but fit, he has you know, like shown. he has shown he has shown fetchit potentium. Mm -hmm. yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So the so poten it means that's the root of power, mm -hmm. or uh, often seen, and then fetch is, is sometimes um like doing something. Right. Right. So yeah. interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, now let's talk about movement eight. I think one of my favorite movements, I think, because it does sort of play around with, uh, the violin again, and then the tenor solo hunter, where have we seen that before? Which one? The, uh, the tenor solo, this sort of, uh, identical looking orchestration with the instrumentalist soloist with a tenor, with the soloist, the vocal soloist and a continuo. Uh, it was, was uh, the previous movement where the, are you talking about the one where the soprano has the solo? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Or, exactly. or did you mean the one where the bassist, ha the bass has the solo? I believe where the bass has the solo. All right. Yeah. That was, that was earlier when we said about how bass was chosen because they were talking about a, a man or, or God, you know, in this case, which they always use in masculine tense and this time, I mean, it's tenor, so it still would have been highly identified as a male voice. Right. Um, and that was that was the other one, qui fecit uh, mi mania. Yeah, yeah. And I believe that that one sort of makes also connection to the um, the uh, the soprano one solo in a way, in my opinion, mm -hmm. because it has the similar orchestration with the solo instrument instead of having a voice, putting an instrument there instead. Um, uh, let's find out what this 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 translate uh, translates to despuit potentes. Let's find out what that means. That means down rulers, mm. down rulers. Again, with the 
downward looking scales. I think mm -hmm. that's a yes, it's a very downward motion. I think I also like the sound of the uh, um, the violin go. I think that's such a cool. Thing. <laughs> I think that is it's such a powerful sound, and I believe we are in F sharp minor. Um, I see really, your note. You have ah. I'm like ah. We're in F sharp minor, uh, and I, I love that sound. Um, and there's a lot of leaps in this too. A lot of leaps in the uh, tenor part as well. Um, yeah, it, it's a lot of it is stepwise, but there are. But when they, I feel like when it leaps. Oh, excuse me. It is very noticeable. Mm. My bad. <laughs> Getting bored by Bach already. Oh my goodness. Okay. Um, I believe there's a lot of really great. Like I, I, I mentioned this a lot, and I'm sure our listeners are are tired of me saying the word gesture. But these gestures that Bach are writing are so delicate and so hard to write. Mm -hmm. um, and and it's just so beautiful. Um, we it is so different from the last movement because it, we get F sharp minor, very serious, very sort of like very focused, you know, mm -hmm. thoughtful, very thoughtful. Any thoughts before we go into the next movement? No, I think you, I think you hit them. It's just the whole movement itself is sort of based in lower tones, much like the other one, much like number five. Mm -hmm. um, again, possibly alluding to it. You, you mentioned ruler. You know, mm -hmm. rulers generally were seen as male, so therefore maybe he chose to put it in that uh, that tonal, not tonal system, that uh, register, the whole piece, alluding to a male presence. Yeah, yeah. And now that we're going to move forward, we're going to check out the ninth movement, which is entitled Esorentes Implevit Bonis. Let's even check out what that says. Let's even see what that says here. Let's look at that. What does that translate to? And that translate to the hungry with good. Hmm. Interesting. And this sung by the alto and also in a very nice key, E major. Mm-hmm. So pleasant, so nice. I like listening to this movement because it was relaxing and calm. Uh, your thoughts? Um, you know, the if you look at the orchestration at the beginning, we have now uh, three of the four voices back. Mm -hmm. And you notice that it's mostly higher tone voices. And the, the, the bass is sort of not left out of it, but I mean, you have a cello and that's the extent of your bass voices mm -hmm. um and it, it just sort of follows this uh, well and first of all we're also back in compound meter so um or, or not back in we're, we're still in compound no no the previous one was in simple meter so this is compound and you know you have higher voices which mm -hmm. uh usually you know we would think because it's soprano we would again think that they were it was women singing it but even if it was guys at the time the higher voices could be referencing like you know, getting higher, meaning whether it's spiritually or moving towards heaven. So I feel like that's, again, an allusion to it. But I also like how there's this very uniformed uh, cembalo line, which sort of gives the the whole piece a pulse because it's pretty consistent. I don't think it, I think there's one point where it changes to eighth notes, but otherwise it's quarter notes the whole way. Yeah. I like I like that groove of um, 
uh, it's, I think it's really beautiful. And it's, mm -hmm. it's very symbolic of um, just peace and, and I think wholesomeness, you know, in a way. Um, mm -hmm. -dee -dee. Oh, wait, hang on. I totally realized I was looking at the wrong one. <laughs> oh, boy. So that's not helpful. So the quarter note thing, save that for the next one. Save that for the next one. Save that for the next one. But I, but my comment still stands. This one mm -hmm. has the cembalo with an almost consistent. Well, I mean, it's not as consistent as the next one, but there is this repeating eighth note, eighth rest, eighth note, eighth rest, eighth note, eighth rest. It gives this sense of pulse still as well. Um, and this is the one with the two flutes in it. Right. Yeah. Right. Believe, Which, yes, that's right. Yes. And right. It's a uh, esorientis. So I don't again, put myself on the wrong one. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, I did note this one with the flutes. They, um, the, the harmony in with the flutes, I love because the tone of the flute, it's a little bit deeper, which I think creates this very cool, you, the way you were you used it earlier, ethereal effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of really great text painting in this one where he uses minor to sort of portray an image, but then immediately returns back to major, I think, which is really beautiful. Um, mm -hmm. I mentioned with the flutes, there's a lot of really great um, contrapuntal motion, crossing lines from one another, um, almost with vo almost like voices. Um, yeah. And using thirds to their benefit, almost using sixth too in the beginning, which I think is a really beautiful um, mm -hmm. tool that he uses in this as well. Um, and something you mentioned from earlier, which, which was pairing voice with instrument. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. These flutes, because they're they're deeper toned, he didn't yeah. choose to put them with the soprano voices like most flutes would probably be paired with. He chose the alto voice, right. which comp I would think complements the lower register of the flute that he uses. Yeah, these were bigger flutes. They were transverso, I believe, so they're reversed, and so not playing that way, but they're playing this uh, playing that way, I believe, this way. Mm -hmm. Playing that way, and they had a little bit of wider bases, which gives it that, uh, or not wider bases, wider tubes. Because I believe they're wooden, and they make right the exactly. Lower, they make the lower sounds. That's right. Yeah, but that's absolutely correct. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this one. Really, not a lot to say about this one, like the bass one. I think it's very plain and very straightforward. Not a lot to sort of discuss with this one. Mm -hmm. um, but let's talk about the next one. Um, which sort of is involved with Sikut Locotis Est. Oh, actually, no, no, we were, I totally skipped one, my bad. Uh, Supisit Israel, which is number 10, uh, featuring the Soprano 1, Soprano 2, and the Alto. Um, I believe this, this one is in B minor. If I'm not correct, I believe that I am. It seems you are, yes, based on the Chambalo line. That is right, B minor, yep, that is correct. And I want to ask you about this um, motion because Bach could easily could have started this on beat two, mm -hmm. but he adds the T in there. Why does he do that? Um, well, I, I mean, it gives you whenever you don't start directly on a beat, I feel like it gives a sense of anticipation. So maybe it's supposed to be some sort of, uh, mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't even know, maybe it gives some sort of of sense of driving motion because when you anticipate your 
you're trying to go ahead of the schedule, right? You're trying mm -hmm. to go ahead of the beat. Mm -hmm. So may, I don't know, maybe he was looking for some theory like that. And this song is the one I was talking about before where I mentioned the Chambala line. Um, mm -hmm. The bass, the uh, the figure, and I don't know if it's figured bass, but the bass in this song in the Chambalo, it's pretty consistent. It, it rarely changes and gives you the sense of driving, almost like a heartbeat. Mm, yeah. Even though it's it's more gentle, obviously you wouldn't be pounding on a uh, on a harpsichord, even though it wouldn't really do anything because it can only play one volume. But still, that's right. Yeah, one of my favorite parts of this movement is when the oboe in measure twenty in measure thirty holds out this long B, and I believe we're going to be cadencing in B minor, but then he sets up B major at the end. All the while still holding the one note. Yeah, I, I, that is wild in my mind. It is it is so breathtaking because you're just kind of like, oh, um, we're getting back to B minor. We might hear a little bit of major in the last four measures, but I believe he's trying to set up minor. Ah, so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And if you notice the, the voicings again, he adds oboes with the sopranos. And it seems like he hears the two of them a lot. Do you think that's intentional? Doing doing what? He, like the flutes, we said he paired with the alto voice. We know the bass he pairs with the um, either bassoon or, or, or cello. And the sopranos, it seems whenever the sopranos have a featured part, there's either oboe or oboe d'amore. So do you think there's an association between what we would think of as female voice parts, mm -hmm. but it's just the soprano voice part and oboe. I think so, but I also think that the oboe doesn't really have a big job in this. Mm -hmm. It almost feel like the oboe kind of is playing the note of the chord in a way. <laughs> like the, yeah, the, it's not very active. No, not very active. Um, but I think it does add to that high level of, of singing, I think, that, that brings out to... Uh, and it's, this is the first time we get a trio, too. Yeah, exactly. The soprano, the soprano, and the alto, which I think is really beautiful. Um, we get some similar movement between voices um, as we sort of get the same phrase, uh, but two bars later from the other soprano. Um, the alto does a ba da ba da ba da ba da you know. But the, the two bars later of the um, sort of copies the um, soprano and does the same thing, but just doesn't do the resolution to F sharp. It moves to A instead, if you, if you check it out. So did you, did you see that, Hunter? The line where you start mm -hmm. in measure one is copied then in soprano two and then moved forward from that point in time. Yep. I think it's really beautiful. And I wanted to mention, you have to have a very, very strong breath support as an oboe player at that end. Oh, point. yeah. Very, very strong. Um, and this now leads us to number 11. And number 11 is the Sicut Locust Est. And let's, and let's sort of find this one. One of the more, I think this is the chorally um, written, I think it's probably the hardest movement. And this one is So He Spoke. So He Spoke. All right. He being God, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. I would think so. Um, 
And let's check this out just a little bit. Here we go. The first thing yeah. that struck me about this piece was that it, it really feels like a round. Hmm. Um, I, I don't know if that's the, I don't know if that's the, the feel he was going for. Uh, wait, let me make sure I'm on the right one here. Um, well, in my notes. Yeah, I might be um, a actually. Because he might be a cannon because he then starts on A. Because in a round, you would be singing the same notes. But right. Right. Cannon is the better term. Um, and I, I, that's the first impression I got of this piece because the eighth note pattern is, is passed around and it's one right after the other. So it's constantly going, but then someone else picks it up. So, yes, cannon is definitely the word. Right. And we get. We get every four every four measures we get a new voice mm -hmm. coming from basso to tenor to alto soprano and not a lot of um I believe this is just basically I mean we have some accompaniment with the continual but we mainly have chorus here. Yes, I noted that it, it's primarily a vocal piece and almost with the exception of the one chordal instrument and right. the cello, which is. doubling really the bass part um yes it's primarily a vocal song right i love i love that at the end of this movement in measure 50 51 52 where the where the tenor just kind of slides right in me re do re mi fa mi <laughs> oh i see okay i see it, it kind of slips it in there right at the end because there because you hear all the voices going because the um the bass is going mi fa sol so so do and then the the tenor has the terrible part um sol so so mi right do re mi fa sol mi mi right do re mi fa mi you know and then obviously the um soprano two line gets copied with the tenor and and the uh out the soprano one goes do ti do which I think is beautiful um great writing on his part. Um, very intuitive. I also started writing that in measures um, measures forty one moving forward. He starts writing in uh, fourth species counterpoint through the eyes of the um, soprano. God, I hate species counterpoint. <laughs> and he uses that line to work on suspension. I believe mm -hmm. going from G F sharp B D. C B A A A B A A. It, it it it's it's beautiful. I think it's awesome. And, and then, it's a, that's another nod to their to the liturgical setting of the poem because species counterpoint right. obviously was developed through. Um, I mean, it's a more academic version, but it was developed through chant, right? So, chant obviously being some of the most. Uh, the oldest sacred music so maybe it's an allusion to the fact that it, in case just in case you forgot it's a it's a non-secular piece that is right that is absolutely right um almost feels like it's not secular oh it, it, it well no i meant to say it, it does feel secular yes it does it does in a way where it moves away from the religious aspect and sort of plays it kind of like with like oh there's it, it almost feels like a bunch of gossiping you know, in a way that... Uh, yeah, that's a pretty good way of putting it. We're saying this, and I think that Bach really gets that really well. And again, with that whole all generations thing, really mm -hmm. adding to the conversation of different voices coming in, and I think that's what he was trying to go for in this movement. 
Mm -hmm. I think is really great. Um, very, very joyous. And I wrote down with an exclamation point, love that penultimate tenor line. Yes, I do. It is very well crafted indeed, Hunter. Um, let's check out the last movement because the last movement is Gloria Patri. And what does Gloria Patri mean? Uh, glory to the Father. Glory to the Father. I want to ask you, Hunter, some of this material, I'm scraping my beard right now, sounds very familiar. I wonder. I, you if, know, I think it just might. Yeah. It almost it's almost had, like we've heard it before. I know. Where have we heard it before? Well, it's pretty much the first movement, right? Mm -hmm. So now instead of the first, uh, I'm trying to think what the official title of the first movement was, Magni uh, Magnificat, obviously. Right. Um, but so now Magnificat, right? They were they were praising in general, right? Now they're being very specific. It's it's glory to God the Father, right? So right. Or glory to the Father. Um, right. And you have all the instruments come back for the end. And... You know, it starts in simple meter, but then returns to compound, sort mm -hmm. of just to finish out the fact that, like, you know, it is a it is a sacred piece, so therefore should be in three. Should be in three. Three, and there's this right, what, and what there's this very. Uh, well, I'm gonna assume D, but I actually didn't look. Let's see. Um, are we ending? Look at the beginning of the of the of the um. Uh, of what 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 he sets it up in D, but mm -hmm. what's the chord in the beginning? Uh, let's see. Chord in the beginning is what do we have here? We've got E A E and F. No, that's not F. That's A. So A E was it a an A chord? A major. A yeah. And now in the key of D, what is the A major chord? It's the the A major is the the five. Look at now, look now, I want you to go from there now to the next section where he sort of goes, why does he do that with all these different voices? Why does he lead up like that? Uh, hang on, where are we looking? Second measure. Oh, oh, just in the second measure. We get Gloria. Gloria. Um, let's see, we have, uh, what do we have here? We've got. Why did he do that? Why does he build that up like that? Well, I mean, the concept of, of, of God, right, obviously is on high. So therefore, maybe since it starts on a G, you'd want to build and each of this, each voice takes it higher and higher and higher because eventually you're going to want to get to where he is, right? He right. with a capital H. Um, and then you have the bum, bum, bum. That we get another cadence, but what is the next cadence in? Uh, let's see. Oh, look, the thing's ringing. It knows we're saying Gloria and it's ringing for us. <laughs> it's like church bell. It's our own version of church bells. I know. We're celebrating it right now. We are. All right. Now, hang on. Where are we looking here? The second we're cadence. We're looking at measure eight. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. All right. Here we go. Um, oh, now we start on F sharp. Well, no, that's not F sharp. Sorry. <laughs> wrong, uh, wrong, uh, what do you call it? Um, it it's the wrong clef. Right. Uh, darn soprano clef. It is, oh, hang on. I got to think about this. I don't usually read soprano clef all that often off the top of my head. So that's C, look at the, look at the top D sharp. Of, it's D sharp. That is D sharp. That's right. 
Check out, oh, look, at the top, look at the top voices. B, A, F sharp, B, F sharp, F sharp, B, B, F sharp, A, F sharp, B, D sharp, and D sharp. It's an odd assortment. I mean, it's it's sounds like a, a B chord. Well, no, you'd need a you need a D sharp. Well, there's D sharp in there, so it's a B chord. It is a B chord. It is a five six five of five because we get to E major. Mm -hmm. Because we're assuming that A major is our is our key. E, right? Glo Gloria Patri. Da, 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 da. We get the same thing that we just got again. Now, again, Hunter, can I ask you again what mm -hmm. do you have on measure 10? What is he then doing again? Measure 10, which is obviously two measures after that. Is that on uh, Filio or Filio? Uh, right, right before Filio. What is he setting up on Filio? Is it another? I believe it's another 565. Five. Well, let's see. We've got. Oh, we got D, B, D, B, and B. So I would say, oh, and F sharp. F sharp, A sharp, too, in the bass. In the bass, A sharp. Oh, yeah, look at that. It's another 565 five of what key are we going to now? Well, if we were, if we were previously in A, um, well, we no, we were, we were in A, we went to E, and mm -hmm. now, uh, are we going to uh, back to B? B, that's right. Yeah. Almost a fifth. We're going through the fifths, right? Yeah. So B minor. We're in B minor. He just wants to hit all the circle of fifths. Yeah. Now look at the look at the next Spiri Tui, and and tell me what you think he's going to go from there to here. Spiri Tui. Here we go. Here we are, Spiri. Um. Let's see here. What do we got? We got, uh, let's see, we got G's, we got E's, we got C's, and we've got D's. Uh-huh. Well, that's almost, that's like a, that's like a C7. Um, mm -hmm. Or not C7, it's almost like C9, because there's no, there's no B. Um, but you take out the 7. Uh, I'm used to thinking in jazz chords, which is weird, but... Look at, the downbeat. Look at the downbeat of Re. Downbeat of Re. Another five seven, which says. Oh, I was up. looking at the. I was looking at the beat before that. Um, we have D. We have D seven that leads to G, right? Mm -hmm. so I believe we go from G to E. E minor. Right. And then. Because it's the relative, we, but then. And then look how he sets us up at the end here. In uh, the very last measure or the second to last? Second to last measure. How do we go from the second last measure to the last measure? What does he do? Uh, let's see here. Well, if we were in E minor and now, well, he's going to want to get back to the tonic, obviously. Uh-huh. Which was D, uh, D major. So, well, I mean, you could go from E to, well, what's the relative major? No, that wouldn't work. Uh, what is he doing? He has D, F. No, that doesn't work. Uh, he goes from let's see. E, what do you think? He goes from dominant of E to A. 
Dominant E. Okay. Well, B to why would you go from B to A? E E E E major to A. Oh, E major. Okay. Because E is the five of, of right A. of A. Right. So you can okay. go backwards. And then what does he spell out in this chord? He spells out the five, but then it sets up the five to the what next result. Chord? Well, the very last measure obviously is, is a D chord, but right, yeah. So it's very expansive in this in this section, and then he gets to bum 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 bum, and just to that same gesture as you were mentioning. I believe he gets that he gives that motive to the oboes. Interestingly enough, right? And then and then we get sicut erat. In Principeo. Where now where are you looking? I'm looking at measures twenty-two and twenty-three. Oh, we've gone back. Okay. That's what yeah. I was like. I didn't see that. Yeah. It is really interesting. And then again, Hunter, where have we seen this melody before? The uh the ba ba da bum. That one? Exactly. It's it's yeah. It's the the compound meter measures from. Let me see. Hang on. I'm trying to find which one it is because I don't remember the name of it. Uh, it was. Oh wait. Think I passed it. It was. Oh come on. It's the major compound one. Um, it's the first movement. Yeah, but that theme is also in one of the other movements. Ooh. Okay. I thought so. But no, no. I... Okay, we could stick with that. You're right. I mean, it, it obviously this whole movement is a callback to the first movement. That is just enjoying glory to the Father, and and uh, I believe that Bach just almost kind of copies and pastes the first movement into the end. I think, and just kind of ends it the same way that he begins it too. Um, so. Well, yeah, it's it's almost I think of it like bookends. You know, he expands on it a little bit. I mean, it's a little bit different, but for the most part, the melody is the same, the mm -hmm. the chordal structure is the same, and the voices are the not voices, the instrumentation is the same. So right. it's really just like that's right. The way you start is the way you begin, or the way you begin is the way you end. I mean, that's interesting. Yeah. And that, my friend, is the end of the Bach Magnificat. Our listeners, please go, please go check it out. There's a really great recording by the Netherland Bach Society that we were able to listen to and talk about today. So please go check that out. Um, that is it for me and Hunter, and uh, we will check you out next time. Hunter, thank you for being here. You're very welcome. Okay. We'll see you next time. And thank you, Johann Sebastian Bach, for your brilliant mind and your work. Next time, we will sit down with Cassidy Watts, an artist from Sydney, Australia. I'm Sean Kunis. And I'm Hunter Sagona. And remember to keep listening to what you love.